Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. That was quick. Uh, <laughs> serve a little fruit, things speed up around this place. <laughs> um, so let me ask you, how do you like the uh, how do you like the fruit and the assortment this morning? Is it great. I'd like to uh, recognize uh, Roger and Henry uh, for putting together breakfast this morning. I really appreciate it. Um, so. Yes, absolutely. I, I really appreciate that. And we're working towards even bigger and better things. So, um, so, but that's, you know, it's one of those things. It's, it's, it's an answered prayer when people come around, uh, something like this and just say, Hey, how can I contribute to this and make it better? And, and, uh, really appreciate Roger and Henry stepping up in that way. So grateful for that. Um, before we begin, we're going to ask Mike to uh, come and open us in prayer. Thanks, Jim. Uh, please keep Tom and Ann Jones in your prayers. Um, Ann's MS is, is really uh, kicking up uh, in a bad way uh, the past few weeks, and they need your prayers, so just um, continue to remember them, please. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for a beautiful, crisp morning to come and, and fellowship together, to come and have a little bite to eat, and to be reminded that you love us and that we are on a journey together. We thank you for Alan, who will share today. I appreciate his friendship and his leadership. Appreciate his walk with you. And pray that as he shares today, that will come through and we will hear how you're using him and how you're guiding him. Lord, continue to bless us all on our journey. And may we be the men, the disciples, the fathers, the husbands that you call us to be. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, uh, welcome. I see, I see a few new faces here and I, and I, uh, I welcome you to, to the RUMC men's group. I'm just so grateful to have you here with us this morning. For those that have been coming, I, I, there were a couple of changes with the schedule that I just wanted to make sure that you noted and updated your calendars accordingly. Um, uh, first and most specifically, our meeting in, uh, the month of March got moved from the 6th to the 13th. Um, and the reason for that is that we have the RUMC pre-K consignment sale. Uh, so if you've ever been before, I mean, they do an unbelievable job, unbelievable job. And this room is packed with toys and all sorts of good stuff. So um, signing on Thursday. So we, 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 we pushed it back a week and just wanted to make sure that you noted uh, noted that. We've also had a little bit of a reordering of the speakers. And uh, uh, so please take note. I'd... Uh, <clears throat> I'd, I'd welcome I'd welcome any of you to uh, make sure that you grab a, a copy of our flyer and um, uh, bring it home with you uh, so that you can make notes accordingly and maybe maybe share it with a friend. Uh, today we uh, uh, we're going to have Alan Kennedy uh, uh, share with us, and I, you know I'm really uh, looking forward to hearing what Alan has to say. Um, uh, Alan is uh, very active in this church. Uh, as many of you know, and um, we have a similar background, and um, I, I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, hearing his story. Um, one of the things that I've, when I've had an opportunity to share a couple times before, I've talked about it, and I think this is what Alan's going to talk about, but God is active in this church. God is working through this church uh, to uh, 
to, to, to transform hearts, transform lives, transform communities. And, um, uh, I am really, um, uh, just grateful for Alan's leadership and, uh, just really grateful to hear how God, uh, has used this church, um, to encourage him on his walk and his journey. So without further ado, Alan. Morning. You know, I do a, a ton of lectures every year in the corporate environment, well over a hundred probably, but I've never before ever got out in public and told, talked about my faith journey, so I'm pretty nervous today. Um, I told Mike I might take some medication. Um, but I'm going to start. Well, there you go. <laughs> I want to follow Bob Fletcher's lead and tell a totally irrelevant joke that makes fun of my own people. Um <laughs> Uh, I was raised second generation Irish Catholic, and Tim and I have some similarities background. So I'll tell a little. My, and my grandfather uh, came from County Kerry in Ireland, and he always told us telling Irish jokes. And he's just, so I'll start with that. And again, it's totally irrelevant to what I'm going to talk about, but it'll help me feel better. Uh, <laughs> and that's what counts. Um, these two, these two Irish guys are sitting. In a, in a, these two guys are sitting at a pub in Ireland, and uh, they've talked to each other. The guy says, "I, I couldn't help but, but uh, listen to your accent, and I see you're from Ireland." I said, yes, I am. He goes, oh, do you mind not telling me what part of Ireland you're from? He goes, I'm right from Dublin. He goes, no, yes, I say I'm I myself. They click their mugs together. He says, not around for me and my close friend here. So they're talking. Well, he goes, do you mind me tell, asking you what part of Dublin you're from? I'm from the West End. You are not. He says, I am too. He goes, well, I am too myself. Glasses clicked together. He goes, what parish were you in? Well, I was say St. Timothy's. You couldn't have been. He goes, oh, I am too. He goes, did you go to school there? He goes, yes, I did. What year did you graduate? 1965. Oh my lord. I asked him myself. He goes, this is truly a miracle. Bartender's sitting there shaking his head. Waitress comes up and says, what's the matter, Patty? Ah, Jesus, the O'Brien twins. They're drunk again. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Nicky. You know, when when you do this and and you get to follow the speakers that I've been able to follow, it's it's pretty intimidating. I don't know scripture as well as, as obviously as, as Bob and Rusty have not been to Peru. Um, so I want to tell you about my story uh, today, which is a little bit different. Um, as I said, I was raised second generation Irish Catholic. Uh, my mother was actually Southern Baptist and converted uh, from being a Southern Baptist Catholicism in the 30s. Now, we always kid about Baptists and Catholics being pretty good at guilt and shame. So you can imagine being raised by a converted Southern Baptist in the Catholic denomination. Um, but the Catholic Church at the time, and this is any, besides Tim, any other former Catholics here? Oh, geez, you know where I'm going then. Uh, this is my experience. So if it isn't yours, you know, I'll, I'll give you that, I'll give that Catholic caveat. Um, the Catholic Church that I grew up in, uh, in, in Washington DC area, we, you know, we stressed a lot of sacrifices, a lot of piety, a lot of ceremony. A lot of beautiful, beautiful ceremonies. Um, my family, and we never missed Mass, never missed a Mass, never missed a confession. And a confession is truly a unique experience, uh, particularly when you know the priest real well, as we did. Because we would go into confession, and bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been one month since my last confession. Here are my sins, and I start my sins. And, of course, the mind senior say, gee, Alan, that's, he was from Ireland. He goes, that's not nearly enough. Surely you've done more than that. <laughs> so you, you make things up because uh, he would threaten to tell your mother. Um, but we were very, very active in the church, but we never talked about our faith. We talked about, we did the rosary. We did the Hail Mary. We did all the, the, the prayers that we were taught to do. But in my family, we never talked about our particular faith our personal relationship with Jesus, and I'll talk a little more about that in a minute. 
but and, and with the Catholic Church that I grew up in, because of the mystery uh, and the power, there was there was a lot of fear. Um, we I saw I saw God with a tremendous amount of awe, uh, a tremendous amount of love, but but God was and Jesus were more distant to me because they were were so far above anything that I could personally have, and and there was some fear um, when I grew up um, in the fifties and sixties in the early Catholic Church when I was young. Uh, that's back in the days when we had the, the uh, Tridentine Mass, you know, the old Latin, um, the priest back was to, to the congregation. And when you received Holy Communion, um, and if you're not familiar with the Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic uh, Church, during the Mass, during the consecration, the Catholic Church believes in transubstantiation, where the elements literally of, of um, bread and wine literally turn into the body of Christ. Therefore, the only person allowed to touch the host was the priest, and he touched the host with these two fingers. I'm pretty, my older brother went into the priesthood, so I got this stuff down to science. And unfortunately, if you happen to drop the host, all you know what broke loose, because you couldn't touch it. Nobody could touch it but the priest. So if it dropped on the ground, it but jumped away, and of course you had to go into that, the sacristy, and bring out a purificator or the, the cloth they bless it, and they take it back. And I always wondered what they did with it when they took the host back there. And as, when I became an altar boy, I know what they did. We just ate it. Um, <laughs> but there's a, I, there's a wonderful story in the book, Angela's Ashes. Has anybody read the book, Angela's Ashes? Wonderful book uh, by Frank McCord, Pulitzer Prize winner, autobiographical, about his life in Ireland in abject poverty. I think it was in Limerick, if I'm not mistaken. But he tells a wonderful story after his first communion. The first communion to Catholic boys and girls is a is an incredibly powerful moment. You're dressed all in white, and and the families are there, and you ha- and you practice for weeks ahead of time how to go up, and and they give you strict instructions. You know, don't chew the host, don't let it touch the roof of your mouth. You know, you don't because you don't chew the Lord. Um, let it melt on your tongue, and so you're always you're, you're you're people get fairly traumatized by this. And Frank McCourt tells a wonderful story that he goes to his first communion and he comes back home and he's so upset and he gets an argument with his mother and he throws up. And his mother says, "Oh my lord, you've thrown up the Lord. <laughs> you've got to go. And this is this is a true story. You got to go back to church right now, get the father, and do do a confession." Yes, but Ma, I just, I just had my first one yesterday. Go back to church. So he goes back and he gets into the confession. He says, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been one day since my first confession. And the priest says, what, what could you have done, lad? He goes, I thrown up the Lord. He goes, you've done what? He goes, I threw up the Lord. He goes, how do you throw up the Lord? So he tells him the whole story. He goes, and me, Ma, made me come down here and confess to it. He goes, ah, oh, jeez, son. Go on home and tell your mom to wash off the Lord off the back porch and just tell her to say five Hail Marys and move on from there. So, <laughs> but it gives you some sense of, of the power and, and what we kind of had, what I, what I kind of had to deal with. I was an altar boy for years. I sang in the choir with your 12 years of Catholic education. It was a, a great education. But, you know, and, and I was very pious as a young child. I prayed all the time. Um, and I remember one of my mom's stories is she looked out the, the kitchen window and I was kneeling in my neighbor's yard praying to St. Anthony because I lost my St. Christopher medal. Um, I didn't find the medal. Um, and they and they kicked out St. Christopher. They got rid of him. He's no longer a saint. I don't know why. Um, I took the bus to Mass every day during Lent, even as a seven, eight-year-old child in D.C. It was a lot safer back then. Uh, to go to Mass before I went to school. Uh, and there was a, a certain amount of uh, pressure in our family to become a priest. My older brother entered the Oblates of St. Francis de Sales as a teaching order of priest. And he professed his vows, but left shortly before ordination, uh, much to my parents' uh, dismay. So my father suggested that perhaps I would want to be a priest. I told him I thought there might be an issue with celibacy down the road, so I probably wouldn't be a good priest. Um, 
but I knew that I, I, I loved my God and I, and I was, I thought I was very spiritual. Um, but the concept of Jesus as my personal savior was, was a leap. And, and this sounds kind of weird guys and, and bear with me, but when I would hear people say, uh, particularly my, my, my mom's Baptist relatives, they had a, that Jesus was their personal savior. I said, what do you mean your, he's not your savior. He's like everybody's. You can't, it can't be yours. And I thought, how arrogant can you be if you think he's yours? Because there was no personal kind of connection with that until I met a woman named Aunt May. And Roger May, uh, she was an aunt in our family by association, not by, by marriage. And I talked in CUC class about my Aunt May. Aunt May uh, showed up at my, at my grandfather, who was an ophthalmologist in Washington, D.C., in his office one day. And um, to make a long story short, uh, my Aunt May was declared a mystic by Pope Pius XI. And a mystic, if you look at the definition, uh, is an individual who has a direct experience and union with deity. They, they communicate directly with God. And uh, there's a wonderful book about her called uh, Susanna Mary. Her name is Susanna Mary Beersworth. You can Google her, and there's all kinds of books about her. But she would, we would go to her house to visit her, and she would tell us stories about her conversations with Jesus. Now, I was a fairly young child, and I thought, well, this is, you know, a little squirrely. And, and for those of you who don't know, I'm a psychotherapist, and I look back at it now at my age, and I'm thinking, well, all right, here's a basically a delusional person who needs a need of medication. Um, a perfectly lucid person, uh, but she clearly, and, and she was investigated by the church and by physicians and, and both uh, Anglican Church as well as the Catholic Church because she ended up converting, and she would talk about her personal discussions with Jesus her personal discussions with the Holy Family. She would walk in the house and say, well, I had breakfast with Jesus, Mary, and Joseph this morning. <laughs> I'm sure you did. <laughs> um, but if you look at her book and what she went through, this is a woman who was incredibly spiritual, and her relationship with Jesus was ex- it was very personal. Um, so that, that was the only person I ever met who had a personal relationship with Jesus, and I thought, well, you know, she's, you know, is, is she sane? I mean, bottom line, um, I think she was, but that was the only person I ever met. Um, so I went through my life, and I was pretty involved and in, in, very involved in my Catholic high school. Um, but I, but I, then I, I went to college, and like a lot of college kids, I, I really walked away from the Lord. I, I went to Mass, and, you know, because Catholic, you have to go to Easter and Christmas. You have to do that. So I went to Mass at Easter and Christmas, but I, but I really didn't do a lot more besides that. And then I ended up, uh, after I got out of graduate school, I moved from Washington, D.C. area to um, rural West Tennessee to be a clinical program director at a mental health center. There are some subtle cultural differences between Washington, D.C. and rural West Tennessee. Um, I did not speak the language. Um, um, I prayed more because I didn't have any idea what I was doing clinically, and then I couldn't understand the patients because they spoke a different language than I did. Um, uh, one story, a little aside, I had a patient come in, one of my first patients, and he was a depressed guy, soybean farmer. I'd have been depressed if I'd been a soybean farmer, too. <clears throat> but he was telling me about it. I said, well, tell me about your day. What did you do yesterday? Well, I worked my crop, came home, and cleaned up, and carried my wife to the store, and came on back. And I said, so you're saying you carried your wife to the store? He says, well, yeah. yeah. I said, well, how far is the store from where you live? <laughs> about three miles. So you're saying you carried your wife for three miles to the store? He goes, in the truck? Where are you from? <laughs> but I began to realize in, in community mental health, and we were the only mental health center for five counties, we saw everything. And... As a brand-new therapist, I, I began to experience what a lot of therapists do, that it, the, a shocking realization of how much pain and suffering the human being can go through. And I remember many, many times when patients left my office, and still today, um, I would start praying because I, I realized that 
the pain they were carrying was so horrible that only God could help. But I was, but there's a theme to my praying. I'll, I'll get that before I pick up on it. But I would pray about, you know, please help these people and, and, and talk about their particular situation. But I didn't pray with any regularity. It was, you know, when the crisis hit, that, that's when I prayed. Um, and I always seemed to pray when I needed something. You know, that's when Jesus was the butt of mine. And we've all talked about that, you know, that we, we pray when we're in need. We forget to pray when we're thankful. <laughs> but God does answer prayers, but in his own way. Uh, sometimes it's not the answer we expect, but sometimes it is. Um, I had moved to rural West Tennessee. I was a single male in a town that didn't have a lot of single males. Martin, Tennessee, at the time, was about 5,000. It's, it's ballooned to 7,000 now. Um, and I didn't know anybody at all. I remember praying one day when I was running, I, I would like somebody in my life. Lord, that I can love, who loves, who would love me the same. And I said, well, where am I going to find that in West Tennessee? Um, but God sent me Marsha, my, my wife. Uh, so now I'm going back to West Tennessee the rest of my life. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> but truly, that, that was my, my, and my, and I told Marsha that the first prayer I remember being answered was, was her. And I began to think, gee, I've got to start thinking differently about my, my belief, my faith in God. And we decided to get married, and I remember um, talking to my in-laws, and they said that I was the first live Catholic they'd ever met. <laughs> so I asked them to share with me more about what that <clears throat> meant. Uh, and they said, my father-in-law said, God rest his soul. He says, we saw that Pope founder on television. He's already dead. Oh. <laughs> uh, so we, we, we got married, moved to Roswell, and... I'm Catholic. Marcia was raised Maranatha, Southern Baptist. I mean, real conservative Southern Baptist. Um, she had never met a priest before, and so we went to get our wedding blessed. And she, I've never seen my wife shake before or since when she met the priest. And I said, you know, and he came out. He had city clothes. And I didn't have his collar on. She's like, oh. I said, what did you think? Is coming to the door naked or something? Um, <laughs> so we moved to Ross. We started going to two churches. We went to St. Anne's down the road and, and Marianna First uh, Baptist. <clears throat> I, I, I knew I, I'd have a hard time in the Baptist church. I just since that. Uh, and my wife thought there was too much exercise in the Catholic Church, because <clears throat> you're always up and down, up and down, kneeling, that sort of thing. Um, but we decided to, to, you know, to, we alternated back and forth, but we weren't really consistent, and my, and my faith journey really had not matured much beyond where I was probably when I was in high school. And, and here I was a grown man. And I started praying again this time because I needed something else. Uh, we, we wanted to start a family. Well, God works in, in, in different ways. It took us... Um, we went through years and years and years, six years of infertility. Uh, so my, Marcia had four surgeries, and um, finally, we, we Marcia got pregnant, and we wanted to lose the baby um, in the se- second trimester miscarriage. And I remember praying at that point, boy, I was angry. And I was particularly angry because how could somebody, how could God punish somebody as nice as my wife? And if you met my wife, she's a saint. I severely overpunted my coverage, as, as the choir tells me. Um, but she never says anything bad about anybody. Maybe except me occasionally. Um, justified. But I thought, how could our Lord let that happen? You must not understand what it's like. And that was the, one of the critical moments of my faith journey. You don't understand. So finally we get, we, you know, nothing happened. We lose the baby and, and all of a sudden, um, we said, we're going to adopt. And, you know, we talk about God things happen. Um, we adopted our son Jacob, who's, you know, most, some of you know is, is Korean. And um, he came home to us when he was four months old. And, and Marcia, much to our surprise, was uh, also pregnant. And when you're infertile, you know how these things happen because you have grants and uh, that sort of thing. Patrick uh, was, con- my youngest son, Patrick, was conceived the day Jacob was born in Korea. 
There is a God. Although I think God realized that we needed some some refreshment in our gene pool. Um, <laughs> little shout. Um, so now we got two infants, and, and we're and we're you know we're not going to church as often because you know we got two infants. We're tired. You know, I don't have time for church. Uh, but when I realized that maybe the boys thought Charles Corralt on Sunday morning might be God, I thought, I, I need to start going to church. Um, so we were invited to a Christmas concert here at Roswell. Um, and my family, and I've been in the choir for years, my, my whole family sings. It's just something that we've always known. My, my mother was a, a um, phenomenal soprano. My older brothers auditioned for the Vienna Choir Boys and made it. Um, my dad didn't let him go, but he made it. Uh, tremendous. So that was very important. So I invited to a Christmas concert. Uh, it was the first concert in the uh, New Sanctuary. And boy, I tell you, I was hooked. Uh, I was in tears, but I was hooked. So I get a call a few months, a few weeks, a few months later, rather, from a wonderful woman. We talked about her last night, Carolyn Cass, who was in charge of recruiting for the choir for centuries. And she asked me if I wanted to join the choir. So we talked for a while and explained the logistics. So I came downstairs. And then one of the things we were very guilty of in life is our egos, our male egos. So I come downstairs and said, well, Marcia, they must have heard me singing because they asked me to join the choir. <laughs> she, said, she said, no, dear, I signed your name on the attendance pad. <laughs> but when I sing, I feel the presence of God. Um, I, it's it's an incredible feeling, and when I joined the choir, and it took me six years to join the church because you know, this whole S communication thing is a little tough for Catholics to handle. But I, that's when I really began to feel a, a you know singing on a regular basis, singing to God, worshiping to God through music. I began to feel a lot more connected uh, to Jesus personally. But I still didn't quite think I had because I didn't think He still understood all you know how I re- really felt, how we had felt in our lives, and this sort of thing. So I, I progressed in my faith journey, and I began to understand this a little bit more. And I read the Bible through twice, first year just, you know, cover to cover, last year chronicle, uh, the chronological Bible. I'm very thankful I didn't live in the Old Testament. It's brutal. Um, I spent how many times have I texted you, Michael, while I was reading the Bible saying, I cannot believe they killed the children. And I'm on and on and on. And Mike just very patiently answers back saying, you're bothering me now, but I'll answer. But, no, that's it. <laughs> but I, I still didn't quite understand it. And... Um, my relationship with Jesus began to change when I began to realize that during my darkest times um, that I began to think that maybe he does know how I feel. And I began to realize that most powerfully in the first Good Friday service that I ever attended here. When it began to, to come home to me through our, our, our beautiful service, how painful and how horrible the crucifixion was. And I knew that intellectually, but it, it really began to realize that, that you know, how, how he did this for, for all of us, and I even began to begin to believe, for example, that it, he might have actually done it for me. I mean, it was a kind of group thing, but perhaps even for me. So when I'm in profound pain or in, in some depression, and, and um, it kind of runs in my family a little bit too, my healing begins with the knowledge that, that he knows how I feel. And, and you look at Scripture, Jesus chose to die the way he did. He, he knew coming ahead of time. And um, and, and I think what, what it really hit me. This was a couple of years ago, very, very powerfully. I was talking to Mike. In fact, I was at the bookstore. I was texting him. I said, what, what's a, a, one of the best Max Lucado books? What would you recommend? And he recommended the book. Uh, he chose The Nails. And I read that book, and I, and I got to the 10th chapter, which is, is called um, I Understand Your Pain. And I thought, man, and I never realized that during the crucifixion that, that ch- the reason Christ chose not to drink the wine was because of the sedating properties of the myrrh and the gall. He chose to go through the pain because he wanted us to know he knows what it feels like. Man, that's nuts. But 
it hit me so profoundly. So I, I want to share just a quick excerpt from the book, and because it just really hit me strongly. Before the nail was pounded, the drink was offered. And Mark says in the gospel, the wine is mixed with myrrh, and Matthew <clears throat> describes it as wine mixed with gall. Both myrrh and gall contain sedative properties that numb the senses, but Jesus refused them. He refused to be stupefied by the drugs, opting instead to feel the full force of the suffering. Why? Why did he endure all these feelings? Because, because he knew we would feel them too. He knew that we would be weary, disturbed, and angry. He knew we'd be sleepy, grief-sticking, and hungry. He knew we'd face pain, not the pain of the body, certainly pain of the soul, pain too sharp for any drug. He knew we'd face thirst, and not a thirst for water, at least a thirst for the truth. And the truth we glean from the image of a thirsty Christ is that he understands. And because he understands, we can come to him. And wouldn't his lack of understanding keep us from him? Doesn't the lack of understanding keep us from others? And that's our challenge, I think, as men. Because one of the things, if you look at body posture about men, men are about this. You get behind me, I'm going to protect you. Women are about this. This is understanding. This is not understanding. And our challenge as Christian men, I believe, is to really develop a relationship where we begin to understand people. And that, you know, we talk about empathy and that sort of thing. But I think we're called to, to model that behavior. And I think as Christian men in particular, because of what Jesus did for us in terms of choosing the pain, because he knew what the pain felt like. He was God. But he did it specifically so we would know that he knew. Because we couldn't understand otherwise. And every day like you all, I see, we see incredible amounts of sorrow in the world. And as a therapist, I see it all the time. But I see it, you know, in therapy sessions. I see it in the work environment where people worship position and power and money more than they worship Jesus. And, and Rusty, good, your, your work is so wonderful with working with executives and trying to bring Christ into the workplace because, oh, it's a barren wasteland there. Uh, a lot of times, at least that's, that's what I see. And I'm not putting down my own company, but it's a barren wasteland. Um, so I think we need to walk as the Lord does. Uh, we need to model this for our children and for our wives and for, for our grandkids and for all that we see, not only our fans, but also with each other in our church. How much compassion and empathy do we show for each other in our church? Um, Second Corinthians has a, 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 I ran across this in Max's book and also when I was reading the Bible last year. It says, praise be to God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Second Corinthians. The Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. For just as the suffering of Christ flows over into our lives, also through Christ, our comfort overflows. Jesus was the ultimate teacher. And I think we, we are therefore obligated as Christian men to teach. And I think I think about the power of teachers. Most of my family are teachers. My mother taught, my twin brother taught. He was a principal 30 years. My sister-in-law, and, and, and uh, I taught a little while. My, my older brother taught. Um, do you all remember your favorite teacher? You remember your favorite teacher? You can picture that person. I'm 60 years old, which Mike shared uh, nauseam with everybody. <laughs> um, but I'm 60 years old, and I remember my my second grade teacher was one of the most incredible women ever in my life. That was 50, 53 years ago, and I still remember that. You all remember your worst teacher? Boy, you see more nods there. <laughs> but I think about what teachers do, and I, I want to read you a story that my brother sent to me, um, and it's a true story. It's not from the Bible, but it is God-led. It is without a doubt. So um, it's an example of how we impact other people's lives in, in the most in the most minuscule ways. Um, some of the choir have heard this. It's, it's about a little boy named Teddy Stoddard. I don't know if you've heard the story or not, but I want to read it to you. Gene Thompson stood in front of her fifth-grade class, and watch my time here, Tim, uh, fifth-grade class on the very first day of school in the fall and told the children a lie. Like most of the teachers, she looked at her pupils and said that she loved them all the same, 
and that she would treat them all alike. And that was impossible because there in front of her, slumped in his seat in the third row, was a boy named Teddy Stoddard. Mrs. Thompson had watched Teddy the year before and noticed he didn't play well with other children, that his clothes were unkempt, and that he needed, constantly needed a bath. And Teddy was very unpleasant to be around. He got to the point during the first few months of the school year that she would actually take some delight in marking his papers with a broad red pen, making bold X's, and then marking an F at the top of the paper, biggest of all. And because Teddy was such a sullen little boy, no one else seemed to enjoy him either. At the school where Mrs. Thompson taught, though, she was required to review the child's records and put Teddy's off until last. When she opened his file, she was in for a surprise. His first grade teacher wrote, Teddy's a bright, inquisitive child with a ready laugh. He does his work neatly, has wonderful manners. He's a joy to be around. Second grade teacher wrote, Teddy's an excellent student, well-liked by his classmates, but he is troubled because his mother has a terminal illness and his life at home must be such a struggle. His third grade teacher wrote, Teddy continues to work very hard, but his mother's death has been hard on him. He tries to do his best, but his father doesn't show much interest in him, and his life will soon affect him if some steps are not taken. Teddy's fourth grade teacher wrote, Teddy is withdrawn, doesn't show much interest in school, doesn't have any friends, and sometimes sleeps in my class. He is tardy and is becoming a problem. By now, Mrs. Thompson realized the problem, but Christmas was coming fast and was all she could do with the school play and all, until the day before the holidays began, when she was suddenly forced to focus on Teddy Stoddard one more time. The children in her class brought her presents, all wrapped in gay ribbon and bright paper, except for Teddy's, that was wrapped in a grocery, scissored grocery bag. Mrs. Thompson took pains to open that gift in the middle of all the others, and some of the children started to laugh when she found a rhinestone bracelet that was missing some of the stones and a bottle of, of cologne that was only one quarter full. She stifled the children's laughter when she exclaimed how pretty the bracelet was, putting it on and dabbing some of the perfume behind her wrist. Teddy Stoddard stayed behind that day just long enough to say to her, Mrs. Thompson, today you smell just like my mama used to. And after the children left, she cried for at least an hour. And on that very day, she quit teaching reading and writing and speaking. Instead, she began to teach children. Jean Thompson paid particular attention to the boy they called Teddy. As she worked with him, his mind seemed to come alive. The more she encouraged him, the faster he responded. And on the days there would be an important test, Mrs. Thompson would remember that club. And by the end of the school year, he had become, well, the smartest child in the class and also become the pet of the teacher who once vowed to love all her students exactly the same way. A year later, she found a note under her classroom door from Teddy telling her that of all the teachers he'd had in, in elementary school, she was his favorite. Six years went by before she got another note from Teddy. He then said they had finished high school in third of his class, but that she was still his favorite teacher of all time. Four years after that, she got another letter saying that while things had been tough at times, he had stayed in school, stuck with it, would graduate from college with the highest of honors. He assured Mrs. Thompson that she was still his favorite teacher of all times. Then four more years passed, and yet another letter came. This time, he explained that after he got out of college, he decided to go a little further. Uh, and the letter explained that she was still his favorite teacher of all times, but that now his name was a little longer. The letter was signed, Theodore F. Stoddard, M.D. The story doesn't end there. You see, there was yet one more letter that spring. Teddy said he had met a girl and was going to get married. He explained that his father had died a couple of years ago, and he was wondering, well, if Mrs. Thompson might agree to sit in the pew usually reserved for the mother of the groom. You'll have to decide yourself whether or not she wore the bracelet the moment the rhinestone was missing, but I bet you on that special day, Jean Thompson smelled just like, well, just like she did so many years before, on the last day of school before Christmas. We never realize the power we have 
as men and as women to impact people's lives in an incredible, powerful way, particularly as Christian men walking our walk. We also need to be very intimate with our faith. And that was the big one of the biggest leaves for me. And Mike, in your sermon, I think it was probably last late spring or early spring, you talked about praying with your wife in bed. Well, Marsha and I went home that night and we started doing that. And you know, I, I pray with the family and we do the blessings and all that stuff, but I've never prayed about me in front of my wife. And it's an extremely intimate moment. And we do it every night before we go to bed. And I'll tell you guys, there's something about praying to God to let your anger go, let your anger go because you've been a jerk that day uh, while you're holding your wife's hand in bed. Because then she knows you've confessed it to God and you're really toast. Um, but it's a very, very, <laughs> it's a very intimate moment that Marsha and I share every night. Thank you, my friend. It's, it's the most powerful moment of our day as we lay there in the dark and we pray about our kids, about ourselves, about our church a lot, um, about Tom Alderman, about Tom Jones in the last couple of days. Um, and I, I would challenge us to take the time to be intimate in our faith, to show compassion, to show kindness and love, but do so in an intimate way because we never realize the power we're going to have with other on other people. So what I would like you to do this morning is take a few, I want to take, we got about 10 minutes, right? Am I on time here? I'd like you to, to, to pair off with somebody you don't know. And, and a lot of us know each other, but do that. And I'd like you to share with them what is some way that some Christian has impacted your life by some small thing they've done. What's the most powerful way somebody has impacted your life? And I'll share the first one that I ever had. And it was in high, it was in high school. We had a wonderful priest named Father Gene Brake. He used to call himself One Punch. Uh, had huge, massive arms. Had huge Coke belt and bottle glasses. And he said, yep, he grew up in the ghettos of Philadelphia. He goes, they used to call me One Punch because as soon as I got one punch in and my glasses got knocked off, that was pretty much all I got. So he used to get beat up a lot. Um, and he left our, our, our high school, um, this is during the late 60s, to go live in the middle of Washington, D.C. on his own to start a mission. Um, this was very unusual for Catholic priests, particularly back then. And he was the first man they ever saw that really walked the talk. And uh, I had the opportunity to get to know him pretty well because in my, in my high school, when we went to confession, we did not go into confession. We sat down in a room with the priest and we talked. And he was always the one I got assigned to, which was kind of neat. And I learned a lot about his walk in faith and his personal relationship. And he had a tremendous impact on me years, even to this day. So please, if you would, take some t- 10 minutes we're going to take, right? Yeah. And talk, meet somebody you don't know, and share with them how Christ, how somebody has impacted your life. Great discussion today and uh, um, uh, amongst us. But just want just to interrupt that for a moment because I'm cautious of the time. We do need to, I think, fix that clock at some point. Uh, it's not accurate. Um, but uh, uh, just real quickly, uh, one of the things that we want uh, want to do is have Mike come up and share with us a few service opportunities uh, that are available to men in the church this month. So, Mike. Thank you. Good morning, gentlemen. Um, first, I want to thank you for um, participating. Last month, we had a lot of you um, come and participate in the Blood Drive and the North Fulton Community Charities Project. So, thank you, thank you. Um, I've got three opportunities here this morning. One is um, the C building, the Counseling Center building, which is at the South Parking Lot. It needs a lot of help. Um, it needs help with painting. Um, there's rotten wood down there. There's windows and doors that need to be repaired. So we would love your help, you know, getting some of those re- repairs done. And in my opinion, I think that's one of the most important buildings we have here on the campus. A lot of people don't realize it's down there. Um, they don't see it, but there's a lot of people here, and I see them all time during the week in crisis situations, dealing with 
all kinds of issues. And for a lot of those people, it's their first impression of the church, the first impression of RUMC. And if we would love to try and get a, a welcome, warm, loving environment for them. So anything that we can do to make that the, the best that we can would be greatly appreciated. So thank you for your consideration of that. Right. Yes, sir. And the champion is Barney Burroughs. Yes, sir. <laughs> Burroughs at, at att.net. I'll take names. That's right. Thank you, Bernie. Yeah, Bernie's done, yeah, has been doing things all over the campus. Yeah. So. Um, one other thing that we would love to, to do is you see, a, you might not see it because it's covered with weeds right now, is the D.A.R.E. trailer that's in the South parking lot. Um, that D.A.R.E. trailer has been used for various relief projects in the past, everything from tornado relief in North Georgia to, to Hurricane Katrina relief in Mississippi. And that trailer has sat idle for too long. Um, one of my goals this year is to try and revitalize that D.A.R.E. ministry, um, get that trailer back in order and inventory, but that's something I need your help with. Um, so we need help. I'm cleaning the trailer up probably, you know, probably re- putting new tires on the trailer. I looked at it the other day, um, helping do an inventory of what's in there. And not only will that help with some of the relief efforts, um, that I know are coming, um, they always do every year, but also we had last year trees down, um, on the RUMC campus. And a lot of you, I know, volunteered to help come, um, and help with that. But if we had that dare trailer ready to go, we would have had, um, you know, chainsaws and tools ready to go to help that. So thank you for your consideration of that. Um, and also coming up as part of our global impact celebration, our annual mission celebration, um, Saturday, March 1st will be our great day of service. We're going to have projects here on campus and all around the Atlanta metro area. So um, you'll see in the Friday Blast, you'll see um, a blurb about that and a place to sign up and look at projects. And there will be more projects coming in the next week or so, too, that will add to this. So um, please look at that and consider um, getting involved with some of those projects. And talk to your Sunday school classes as well. So, thank you. Um, all right, great. So if uh, if you have a chance, if you would uh, please grab one of those uh, service flyers and, and prayerfully consider um, serving in that way or another way. Um, I was, uh, in addition to that, um, just want to make sure that you also take a flyer um, that you might have and, and uh, maybe share it with somebody <coughs> to come. I see a, see a lot in the face. So I appreciate you being here. I hope, uh, hope you'll come back. I do want, again, want to thank Roger and Henry. Uh, for all that they did this morning to enrich our program. I'm really grateful for that. And I just want to thank Alan for just doing a fantastic job this morning. I uh, just thought his... Uh... His testimony was so powerful. You know, his testimony was so powerful. And I think one thing, one of the things that I love about this group, right, is we get to hear from, from the hearts of men in our church. And we get to hear how they're... They're experiencing God, and then we get encouraged by their stories to let other people experience God through us. And I really, really, uh, obviously there's a lot I could relate to in that story, and uh, and I just thought that was, the other thing about it, you think about Alan said, he doesn't talk about his faith very much. That wasn't apparent to me, you know, so that was so well done. So, Alan, we really appreciate the leadership, all that you do at the church, and supporting the PPR and the choir, and and uh, we really appreciate your testimony today. I think it had a big impact. And if you wouldn't mind once more, just maybe close us up, closing us in prayer. Thanks. 
Nobody popped today, Joseph. <laughs> Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day, and I thank you particularly for this group of men that's come together to talk about our love for you and our faith walk. I ask that you guide us as we leave here today, that we walk your walk in a gentle, loving, and compassionate way to model your love for us, may it overflow in our love for others. Sometimes we men have a tendency to be a bit firm, a bit hard. I ask that you soften us. Make us vulnerable. And let us model, again, the love and the gentleness that you have for us. I thank you for this church and all that means to all of us in this room. I thank you for Mike's leadership. I ask that you bless all of us as we leave here today. In the name of our risen Lord. Amen.